Alrighty, folks. On this episode, you will meet Nick Janitakis, a Docker captain and software developer with 20 years of experience who operates a successful Python shop which focuses on building and deploying web apps. His love for Flask, the popular Python web framework, and Docker deployments is only superseded by his love for Swedish death metal. His blog features more than 230 posts that cover a range of topics and tutorials, which are highly relevant to serious Python developers and freelancers. His courses feature battle-tested wisdom and code snippets you can implement in your own projects to get you up and running quickly and with confidence. This is Profitable Python, Episode 3, recorded July 23rd, 2019. Welcome, Nick Janitakis. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. That was one heck of an intro. <laughs> you deserve it, man. Uh, well, there's a lot of ways that we can go with this. Uh, I'd like to keep it just conversational. And really, I think what makes, what makes you shine in the uh, Python community is just your uh, 20 years of experience and the fact that you've mixed in this Docker uh, aspect, which I haven't seen on the market a lot. So I was wondering if you could just talk about like, you know, what, what's the difference between a, a Docker captain and then someone like me that just, you know, is kind of playing around with Docker? Well, there's really no difference that much. I mean, at some point, Docker a couple of years ago reached out to me and uh, they saw my blog and some of the work I was doing with Docker. And they were like, hey, we kind of like what you're doing. We have this new program coming out called the Dr. Captain's program, and uh, we want you to be a part of it. So it's really just like, you know, Docker took a look over my stuff. They were kind of happy what I was producing, and then they gave me like a shiny title. But um, yeah, it's not much different between you and me. Like anybody who learns Docker and uses it out in the wild, yeah, we're pretty much the same. Okay, excellent. And I, I mean, there's like, there's some perks, I guess, like, Mm -hmm. going to DockerCon or whatever, like you'll get a free ticket as a Docker captain. And we have like a, like a private Slack channel, but a lot of the things that we talk about ends up being um, blogged about or tweeted about. So we're very out in the open. Like it's not like a special, like secret behind closed doors type of thing. Okay. But they do endorse your content, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So if I do a post about something Docker related on my site, they typically will retweet it out there which is nice because they have a lot of followers. I think Docker's up to like, I don't even know now, like 300,000 followers on Twitter, something like that. Mm -hmm. Do you think we've hit uh, the tip of the iceberg with how Docker's being leveraged or is it, is it pretty uh, like household item? Uh, I don't think it's a household item yet. But so I started with Docker back when, uh, 2015. It's been a while now, so like four years. And I feel like for the first, like maybe two, two or three of those years, it was very like early adapters, not too many people using it. People are like, what, what's Docker? And like mm -hmm. today, I think a lot of, a lot more people do know about Docker, but I don't think we've really hit that critical mass point where, you know, everybody knows about it or at least tried it out and, you know, decided whether or not they want to use it. I think there's still a lot of people who haven't really used it um, that much yet. Okay. So there's definitely room for people to kind of get in here and start experimenting with it and maybe carve out like a niche in their career, you think? Oh yeah, definitely. Awesome. Okay. Well, I've certainly enjoyed watching your tutorials on that. It's really uh, up to my game. Have your other students 
or how many students have you run through your courses? Uh, if you combine all of them together, mm -hmm. it's at about 35,000 people. Okay. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. So, uh, are they, are they having similar experiences like Docker that kind of like discover it and it changes their game? Cause it certainly did for me. Sure. So at the end of uh, the Flask course, you know, I, I asked people to fill out a little survey, you know, like a questionnaire, kind of like a guided review type of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people who respond, they were like, they were really happy that Docker was kind of like a side topic that we cover in the course because they were like, you know, oh, I heard about this Docker thing, but I didn't really get into it. And like, now that I see how it's being used, it's like, that was really cool to learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so I'd kind of like to take this a little different direction. Uh, Pre-interview, we discussed uh, basically if you had to start over. So you've got 20 years of experience, but if you had to start over uh, with only the fundamentals of Python, uh, but your back was against the wall and you had to make some cash in like the next six months, uh, what, what would be kind of like maybe like a step-by-step -step process? Not... Uh, you don't have to get like super in the weeds, but I'm just kind of curious, like how you would approach that. Yeah. So I'm a big advocate of like doing things in the open. So I, I think if I were to get started and I had to make some money in like half a year, um, first of all, like I think if you had an application idea in your mind, like something that would help you day to day, like basically scratching your own itch, like that type of program. Like mm -hmm. for me, those have always been like a really good motivator for, for developing. Like, there's just a certain like specialness to it where you wake up every day and you just work on a project that actually helps you do things. So like I would, I would try to develop an application like that where, you know, whatever, whatever I need, whatever problem I need to be solved, I would work on a program to solve that. And I would do it out in the open. I would start a blog. I would write about the process of, you know, why I'm making this application, you know, what problems it's solving for me. You know, if you like doing videos, cause some people don't like doing videos, um, you know, if you do like doing videos, maybe start a YouTube channel and, and kind of just document like behind the scenes. Like I, I feel like people, uh, they seem to like that, like not, not seeing the finished product all the time, like just seeing the behind the scenes and stuff like that. Like you can fill a lot of material doing that. Okay. Excellent. And I, I was reading that you had uh, pretty good success with Kickstarter. What would be, would you use Kickstarter to kind of vet your idea as well? Or what other avenues would you kind of like you would do it out in the open, but you would still kind of test your market a little bit some, some way. Yeah. So advertising, especially to other developers, it's a very tricky thing. Like, to be honest, I don't even know how in the world those Kickstarters were successful. Like the Flask <laughs> Kickstarter was such like, it was such a weird thing. Like I didn't even have a website or maybe at that time I did, but I had like three blog posts on it. Like I was totally like a ghost online basically. Okay. And, um, I ran a 30-day Kickstarter campaign to make that Flask course. And the campaign pretty much tanked like almost the entire 30 days. Hmm. And then like at the very end, within like the last like four days or something like that, this uh, Australian business guy, he basically solo backed the whole project. Like there were a couple other backers before then, but yeah, he, a majority of it was just from him. So I can't really give great advice on Kickstarter because I feel like I got pretty lucky on that one. Although I did run a second Kickstarter for the Docker course afterwards, but at that point I had a little bit bigger of an audience to reach out to. And um, I think that makes, like Kickstarter is a very weird thing. It's like people want to use Kickstarter to bootstrap their ideas, you know, you know mm -hmm. maybe get some, like, do people actually want this thing? But 
Kickstarter really shines when you already have an audience beforehand, I feel like, because then, you know, let's say you're developing this thing out in the open for a couple of months or whatever, like we're on a six month time frame here. But let's say you're developing out in the open for two months, three months, you're building up an audience. And then it's like, you know, after you've gained that audience trust and you're releasing good stuff, like no strings attached, then you, then you can maybe be like, oh, hey, by the way, you know, I'm thinking about starting a Kickstarter two weeks from now. And now, like by the time you launch the Kickstarter, you, are, you already have an audience that will hopefully back you or, you know, at least help spread the word about it. Okay. Uh, that is, that's awesome to hear. Do you have any, do you have any insight on like audience building or how you would kind of market yourself if you didn't have an audience? Yeah. So when I started, I basically, I mean, I guess you can say I'm a greedy bastard. Like I just kept, I kept blogging for myself really. Like the, my blog was basically just a brain dump of like problems that I had and I just wrote them out in the open. And uh, because, you know, I'm not the only person, like the, the problems I'm solving aren't super unique. Like lots of other people have that. And, you know, I feel like just, just the process of writing out a blog post where you have to like outline it, write it out, like read it over, review it, make sure it's accurate. Like that really, really, really helps you learn the material. Um, so I basically just started blogging and, uh, you know, occasionally I would throw something up on, on Hacker News and pray to the Hacker News gods that it would reach the front page. And then it never does. <laughs> but once in a while it does. But uh, what I really found though, honestly, um, when it comes to trying to market yourself with no audience, Reddit is pretty good as long as you never post your own content, but you get engaged with the subreddit that you're interested in. So like if you were, I don't know, whatever, trying to to like teach Docker stuff or whatever you're trying to get into, you know, reply to other people's comments with, you know, no strings attached, really helpful advice, like help these people out. And then, you know, you write this whole entire like three or four paragraph response to someone not asking for anything in return. And then maybe at the very end of that reply, you just throw in like, oh, by the way, you know, I wrote about this in more detail on my site. You know, if you're curious, go check it out. So, you, you know, you link drop yourself there. But then at that point, like the guy or girl is super happy that you reply to them and help them out. It's like, you don't feel like, you know, like a car salesman, like shoving down, you know, trying to get like link spam to your site. So developer, yeah, developers are very, 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 very picky when it comes to advertisements, Uh, especially me, like I'm a developer too. Like, you know, I run ad block. If I, if someone's trying to like push a product on me, you know, it's like, no, like, you know Mm. what I mean? Like it's very tricky. So. Yeah. I've, uh, (laughs) I've, I've read that uh, while I was kind of doing research for this interview, uh, there was some information about uh, you basically being very fundamentally opposed to uh, basically like paid advertisements and that sort of thing. But it raises a question about uh, what, what do you think about the uh, Brave browser and that uh, basic attention coin that they're using to kind of curb the... Um, all the advertisement issues that people are like, there's like security issues involved and then Google and Facebook have everybody's data. And uh, are you familiar with the basic attention coin and the brief yeah. browser? So that I am actually unfamiliar with completely. I know a little bit of the, the of the browser itself brave, but yeah, I okay. know nothing about that. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm still kind of like pioneering my knowledge about it still, but I guess uh, there's a guy uh, the guy that wrote the JavaScript language, uh, he created this uh, basically to save people computing time because I guess there's all this, there's this issue, like there's like, uh, there's statistics with like hours of 
um, computing time spent basically serving up ads and then there's a whole security piece and then uh, the, the people that should be getting the ad revenue are not uh, being awarded fairly. And so it was kind of his attempt to uh, level the playing field and uh, award people that were providing good content, basically they would get awarded. But uh, we, we don't have to dive too far into that. Um, maybe the next time I get you on here, we can, we can <laughs> talk about it. But uh, just to change the subject a little bit, uh, what was your algorithm for uh, building a blog, like a tech blog on those, uh, like Hacker News or something like that? In terms of like trying to figure out what I should post on the site? Uh, well, and also kind of, it sounded like it was an iterative process that you went through to, to uh, write the blog, to kind of make it a, a value-added uh, piece yeah. of content. Yeah, so when it comes to writing content on my blog, I, I try very hard never to really sit down and try to like invent a blog post because when you try to do that, I feel like, I don't know, the content just feels like very forced and maybe not engaging as it should be or could be. So for me, like the process of like, how do I just start writing a blog? Like it just comes down to oddly enough, like just taking action, like writing, you know, you know, if we're working with our six month time frame on the side project, like man, the amount of content you can create from just sitting there every day writing that program, like you can finish a six to eight hour day and end up probably with like five or six blog post ideas um, mm -hmm. just based on that one day's work. And then you can just go and flesh out those posts like whenever you want, like on a schedule. But yeah, so like my process really was just like getting my hands dirty, working on something, and then kind of just documenting around the process of doing that something. Okay, excellent. And you've, you've uh, realized I was, I think the last statistic I saw is you had like 12,000 unique visitors per month. Has that number changed based on your blogging activity? Yeah. So now I'm up to uh, like about 105,000 uniques a month. Okay. Wow. I think the statistic I was looking at was like maybe a year old or something. So that's really amazing. Yeah. The growth has been quite a lot. What do you, what do you attribute that growth to? I'm just curious, like, is, uh, is there, are you just riding the tide or, or are you doing I think, something? I special? think I'm just, I think, no, I don't think I'm doing anything that special. I think it's just like what I happen to be learning, you know, over the past year or whatever, or writing about just resonates with people. Like mm -hmm. there was one like Docker post about like how to configure uh, the windows subsystem for Linux to work with Docker for windows. And like that post alone gets, uh, a pretty decent amount of traffic, you know, like thousands mm -hmm. of views, um, not a day, but yeah, sometimes it gets quite a lot. I, I, I don't know. It, blogging is weird. I think just being consistent, like mm -hmm. for me, I always post an article every Tuesday and um, yeah, I, I've stuck to that for probably about two years in a row. I don't think I missed a single article unless, I don't know. Yeah. I, so I think like to grow, just be consistent. Like, Mm -hmm. It's a little bit strange though, because the more consistent you are, like as soon as you decide like, okay, I'm going to post a blog post every Tuesday, like mm -hmm. that kind of shifts your mindset a little bit. Suddenly it's not, suddenly it becomes almost like a job and not just like some organic thing based on like what you're working on. Okay. Yeah. And I, I want to dig into that a little bit because um, I think, I think there, somewhere down the line, you, uh, you had like a very early uh, experience with basically working for somebody else. And uh, you decided 
that, that, that there was, there's gotta be a better way. So how do you kind of, um, how, how do you make sure that you're still kind of like feeling like you're an entrepreneur, even though you, like what you're talking about is kind of, it's almost feels like a job or a chore. How do you, how do you kind of navigate that? Um, you know, if you want to be successful working on your own, you do need some sense of like determination or willingness to work. Like, you know, you basically get out what you put in. So like, if you go the lazy route and it's like, eh, maybe you post like twice a month or something like that, like, you know, your business is just going to flop. Like you have to do the work. So I, I really feel though, like if you keep yourself busy, like doing things, like the content just comes naturally. And by the time that you want to write, I don't know, like I, I like the once a week because it's not super demanding, but it's still pretty regularly. Um, yeah, there's always something interesting to write about. And then it doesn't really get that boring or like, oh, like, oh no, it's work, like that type of thing. And also like creating content and blogging and whatever, that's only one component of um, what you might be doing. So like, I also do freelance work. Like people hire me to, you know, do like one-on-one -on -one calls with them for training or implementing some Flask applications. Like I just got off like, an 80 hour contract for Flask, like not too long ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that really breaks things up too. It's a nice switch between, you know, writing blog posts and actually doing work for client work. And then like that client work that you do, it kind of goes like full circle around to gives you ideas and what you could blog about, you know, as long as you don't leak out any uh, information about the companies that you're working for. Mm -hmm. So, but I mean, there's like a lot of good general concepts that you can usually take away from any project and get a lot of uh, material from that. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, when I was doing research for this, uh, you, I was reading a blog you had written about, uh, basically navigating those, those waters with protecting your intellectual property, um, and being able to basically provide extreme value, but still kind of like being able to operate with standard code. Um, mm -hmm. did, did that, I mean, was that like a natural thing for you to just kind of learn about that? Or did you have to learn the hard way about uh, how to structure your contracts? It's like a little bit of both. So like I never had like formal business training. So it's kind of just like, just go as you go and kind of figure things out. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, you just have to like, it's definitely not common sense to me. So there was some trial and error. But when it comes to like licensing code and stuff like that, it's like, yeah, like if you're about to sign a contract with a company, then um, you have to be very, very, like very clear on who's going to own the code that you're writing, because that could be the difference between you never, ever being allowed to even mention that code somewhere or being able to use it on other projects, maybe even write about it. Okay. And there's some, some way you, you have a way to kind of draw a line in the sand. Uh, I was reading like kind of maybe boilerplate. Well, maybe boilerplate isn't the right word, but somehow you yeah. have like business logic separated from, I forgot what the term was that you were using. Can you share a little bit on? Yeah. So there's like, you know, there's like almost two types of code. There's like, it is kind of like boilerplate, but it's more of like out in the open generic, like pre-licensed code. Like if you're working on a Flask application and I don't know, you looked at Flask's documentation and there was some snippet of code there. Like it doesn't seem reasonable at all that you wouldn't be able to reuse that code somewhere else because it's not even like, you know, maybe, maybe you edited two of the 20 lines of that snippet or whatever, but it's like, you know, that's out in the open, like public domain license to MIT. Like, 
you have to, you know, you should be allowed to reshare that code every, you know, somewhere else. But mm-hmm. when it comes to like, you know, business logic or something very uh, specific to the company that you're working for, like, you know, if you develop some, you know, algorithm for them to do something, like, yeah, for sure, it shouldn't even even cross your mind to share that because that's like very specific to their business. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any recommendations on? like how people can go about getting educated or do they just go pay a lawyer 250 bucks an hour? Yeah. So I've never hired a lawyer. I think you just have to, you just have to like understand the code that you're writing. Like it it should be kind of, I mean, I hate using words like it's so obvious, but it's like, you know, if your task is to, to create some, like, I don't know, some like market trading algorithm that's like so super specific to a business. Like mm-hmm. that should be off the table for you. Like you should not share that. You should not talk about that. And like, that should be pretty clear, mm-hmm. but for everything else, like, yeah, you kind of just have to play it by ear. And if you have any questions, maybe talk to the company that you're working for. Cause usually the companies that are, that are hiring you, like they have l- lawyers on the payroll and it's like, you know, you're not trying to become an enemy of the company. Like they're not trying to take advantage of you. Like that just might be the situation. Like maybe they just took a, an existing contract and tweaked a couple of paragraphs and, you know, they don't really understand like freelance work is much different than being on like a, an actual payroll employee. So you can always lean on them to ask for help or clarification. Okay. Excellent. Uh, are you, are you familiar with any sort of like open source freelancing contracts or, or mm, what do you think not, about that concept? I haven't really thought too much about that. Because usually I don't provide the contracts. Uh, they provide the contracts to me and then it's up to okay. me to read it and sign it. Yeah, so I, I've actually, yeah, I can't think of a, a single instance of where I provided a contract that I expected them to sign. Okay, and is that um, because they typically have projects that are existing or something or or would or could you ever even imagine a scenario where you would be providing a contract? Hmm. Well, usually it's like they're the ones reaching out to me to hire me to do something, whether or not the project exists or not beforehand. I don't think that really matters too much, but yeah, they usually just propose the contract and then it's like, do you accept that? Yes. And then you just move on. I I can't actually think of a case where I would issue them a contract first. Okay. Yeah. That maybe I'm showing some uh, ignorance on my end, but uh, maybe that solves some questions for some other folks too. So, yeah. Okay. Because well, I, I almost think I almost think of it like a receipt. Like mm-hmm. if you were to buy something from a store, the store gives you a receipt. Like you wouldn't ever really give the store a receipt, I guess. Okay. Yeah, that's good to know. Um, so anybody out there, basically, that's looking to get into business for themselves, don't waste money on uh, creating like boilerplate legal contracts. Is kind of what I get out of that. I'm sure. Like if you just in you know, trying to get into it from ground zero, you know, there is value, I think maybe in Googling for that information and see what's out there. Cause you know, it's never really a terrible idea to do more research, you know, especially sure. when it comes to legal stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, on that note, I am, I am kind of curious. I know you can't like divulge specifics, but I'm, I am curious about, um, like help. So you're making these apps, the only reason these people are basically paying you is because you're creating value for them. Are you seeing some sort of trends and like, like where you're creating value? Like, are you help them 
are you helping them go through like some sort of a digital transformation or are you helping them? Well, I don't even want to color it in too much. I'm just curious, like, is there some sort of trends that you're of the problems that you're solving, I guess? So a lot of the work I do, um, it's based around like automation kind of and and deploying, but to give you an example on that flash contract that I just worked on. So they were doing this thing. I can't really go into super specifics, but it required them to go after hours. So like seven, eight o'clock at night and do this manual task for 45 minutes every single business day of the week. So five days a week for 45 minutes after hours, someone had to do a very, very careful like manual workflow to ensure that very, very critical data was going from A to B, let's say. And um, my job was to basically go in there and and remove like the human factor. Like how can we automate this in a way where nobody has to do anything, but the data is still like guaranteed to go from A to B um, and, you know, have ways to get notified if something goes wrong and stuff like that. So like I just developed like basically a Flask API service that one of their apps talked to and uh, it does all the the automation, you know, internally. And uh, yeah, it saves them like a lot of time and a lot of potential errors. Okay, awesome. Are you allowed to talk about like the tech stack that you used? For, yeah, so that, that was just, like that? Mm-hmm, it was just um, Flask, Celery, Postgres, Redis, and uh, Docker. Excellent. So it's very, it's very similar to, to, the, to the tech stack that I do in the course. Okay. And, and just to uh, be clear with Celery, because um, I've kind of just my own research with Flask, I've, I've seen some kind of conundrum between like they, they basically built the project to be a classic web server. So that kind of takes the whole like async out of the loop, but I know there's some, so that's the whole purpose for Celery, but um, there's also some initiatives to kind of like duplicate the Flask project and make it async. Like, do you have any input on, on that whole conversation or is that just like for the Googles and the Amazons, like for everyone else, like don't worry about it. You're never going to run into performance issues. Uh, like when it comes to Flask, so I'm a big fan of using the web server G-Unicorn. So like Uwizgi is the other popular one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I kind of like, I try to write my code sequentially so things, they get executed like synchronously. And if I need to do something in the background, yeah, I like to offset it to Celery to do that in the background. But, you know, um, Python 3 has some features that are out there. I haven't really used them too much, but there's like async await where you can Mm kind of execute things asynchronously in the background, but then it's like, you know, you're missing out a lot on what Celery gives you, like what happens if that task that you just did async await, like fails, like what's the retry policy on that? Like Celery has a lot of batteries included to kind of help you, you know, do things even as far as like rate limiting, like you can do quite a lot of things with with Celery. So I don't think it's really going to go away that much. So I kind of treat them as two independent separate things. So Flask, like the web server and then Celery, it's like, that's where you throw work to do in the background. Okay, excellent. And so I just, uh, I've had some basic experience with Celery, but it's still like, I'm kind of a visual person. Like how, how would like a visual person get acquainted with Celery? Uh, like, do you have any recommendations on there or do you just kind of use it in practice with like your Flask app, for example, and learn that way? 
I think like maybe one of the most straightforward examples, like the use cases and when and why you might want to use Celery is like when it comes to sending out emails. So like imagine someone loads your like a contact form on your site and they fill out their email and the body of the message and they hit send. Now, what happens if you don't use Celery and you're just using something like G-Unicorn or whatever, and they click the send button to send that email. And what happens now is like, well, your, you know, your Flask application, let's just say for argument's sake, it's configured to use Gmail to send the email. You know, typically you would use like a transactional email service like SendGrid or any one of those, but let's say you're just working with Gmail and you click send. So what happens now is like your web application needs to contact Gmail Gmail needs to do its magic to send the email and then give you back a response. And who knows how long it's going to take for that uh, response to come back from, from Google. Like it, it might be one second, it might be 500 milliseconds, it might be 25 seconds and then time out. But all, all of that period of time of waiting, like the user click that send email button and they just see like a busy icon, like a busy mouse cursor icon. They're not getting a response back from your Flask application. And now, like, imagine if, like, 10 people tried to do that in parallel, like, your Unicorn web server is going to get, like, it's going to be unable to process requests because it's going to, you know, it's just sitting there waiting for a response from Gmail. So, like, the case of when you might want to use Celery is, like, well, now, instead of sending that email right there directly in the Flask um, request, you can, you can offload it to Celery in the background and then immediately respond, like, letting the user know that, uh, the email was sent. Whether or not it was successful doesn't really matter at that point, but it means that um, Flask's Unicorn server can respond back immediately. And then, you know, a second later, two seconds later, five seconds later, um, Celery will execute the task and then the email will get sent. So, yeah, I think sending email is a pretty okay example of, you know, the value of doing something in the background. Okay. And, uh, but you could also do that with like API requests or what are some other kind of use cases you can, you could imagine for Celery in a Flask app. So do you mean like using the requests library or something else? Uh, well, just from, uh, I guess like from my own experience, I've had, I've, I've had some things kind of get tied up like, um, like language converters or something like that where I have to send. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know uh, if there was some other kind of, other use cases where you might yeah. kind of bring Celery into the mix? So like pretty much any third-party API call that you're doing would be a decent okay. idea to use Celery because you can't control how long that response is going to take from that third-party API. It's also pretty good for doing, and um, yeah, I use this all the time, for periodic tasks that you want to run on a schedule. So let's say that you know, every, every day at 2 a.m. you want to you know, look up something in a database and maybe mark some columns as whatever, like whatever work that you need to do. So you can okay. set up a Celery task to do that and it'll just continuously do those every day for you and you don't have to think about it. Excellent. Yeah, I think I, think I recall that in the course now. Uh, mm-hmm. So soon I forget. <laughs> <laughs> and the beauty about that, because I know listeners might be thinking like, well, why don't you just do cron jobs? And like you totally could, right. but the benefit of doing it in Celery in that case is, uh, you know, if you're running everything in Docker, you know, you don't really want to be running your cron jobs inside a Docker container. And also... Celery could be distributed against multiple uh, hosts. So it's like, you know, if you had five web application servers running, you wouldn't want that cron job to be executed on all five of your web servers. You only want it to be run once and uh, Celery will know how to do that. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
so along so the back end for celery is redis uh from what i re- recall on your courses but i was always kind of curious why uh like do you ever leverage no sequel or are you kind of fundamentally opposed to uh using no sequel back backends for your flask apps uh that's kind of like two questions in one so there are other backends that you can use with celery besides redis okay. i think rabbit rabbit mq is one of them um mm-hmm. but the reason why I chose Redis in that case, and I'll get to the other question in one second, is mainly because Redis is like pretty cool. It's like a Swiss Army knife. Like, it's not just like something that Celery uses as a backend. You can use it for, you know, like a key value store. Like, if you want to cache some of your database responses in there, you know, if you have an expensive database query that takes like, you know, three seconds to execute, if you throw that in a cache in Redis, maybe now it responds in like, you know, two milliseconds or, or almost instantly, basically. So mm-hmm. it, you kind of get to like, reuse Redis for multiple components of your app without having to complicate your stack by adding more stuff where your stack is like, you know, additional services that you would need to run. But as for like a NoSQL, like would I ever use that as a backend, like a, like a permanent, like persistence data store, like as an alternative to Postgres? Mm-hmm. Mm, not really a big fan of using like MongoDB and other things like that because I think okay. nowadays, and this is all personal opinion, of course, and you know, there's other people who think this way as well. You can always Google things, but like Postgres has become very good at being a NoSQL database when you need it because, you know, you can use JSON columns in Postgres where it's like now you can just throw, you know, your quote unquote NoSQL uh, data in there and then query it and index it. It's pretty, pretty nice. And you only need to do that for the components where you want it because when, if you want, you know, um, normalized like SQL data for everything else, you can still do it. Hmm. Like your user's table or whatever. Are you are you familiar with the post post rest project? Post rest, uh, not really. But if I were to guess, maybe possibly I've read about it in the past. Is that the one where it's like Postgres becomes like a RESTful API for your application, or no? Yeah, it's crazy. So from my experience, it's basically a, another Docker container that just communicates on a different port, and it turns your relational database into um, like a full blown API. Interesting. Um, yeah, I I'm just starting to mess around with it. It's still being developed. There's some things with like bulk upserts that it's uh, lacking uh, from from what I understand. But uh, I I just thought it was like a really cool concept. Like you don't I don't know. Do you do you think that would be something you could leverage, or you're still kind of into like building the APIs yourself? From I think. With- I- I think it just really comes down to the demands of the project. Like, I don't know the details of that post rest thing, but if like it can handle permissions and stuff like that and like that, and that, and you can figure out that it just works for your app, then sure. So like, I'm not like a, you know, I like Flask and I like Python and I like Docker and and I like all these tools, but it's like, I'll, I'll move and use something else if I think it makes my life better, you know? Okay. So I'm I'm always on the lookout for ways to improve my workflow or make my life better as a developer. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, on that note, what do you think about um, these DIY website uh, frameworks like Wix and, and whatnot? Uh, I don't use them personally, only because I don't really have a need to right now. But yeah, I mean, if you're not very technical and you kind of just want to throw something up quick, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to use a site like that. Do you think it's kind of encroaching on um, like the, the income potential for... Uh, web developers or is there is there kind of like what you were saying like each project has its own 
requirements and and therefore like both of them can coexist in the same yeah i think they definitely definitely both can coexist because it really really depends like let's say you're working for some company and they just want like a brochure type of website where it's like about the company you know little knickknacks like information about the company you're not really creating a program per se you're just like displaying information then using like a wix site or a wordpress site even um you know where you don't really have to get too lost in the woods of developing a custom application i think those are good use cases for when like a wix type of site would be reasonable but if someone comes to you and they ask you to develop like you know like in my case with the flask contract like i'm not going to make a wix app for that that's just like totally custom application so both can definitely coexist in, in the same universe. Okay. Well, that's good news for uh, yeah. those of us that are, are uh, kind of embarking on this. So also, you- sorry, sorry to interrupt, but it's super involved with this. Uh, there's like another medium too, where it's like, I'm, I'm guessing you've heard of Shopify, the e- uh, yes, e-commerce uh, platform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not but like, familiar with it, but. Okay. So it's basically just like, like an e-commerce platform as a service where, you know, they give you, you know, pre-built sites similar to Wix or whatever, but it's very, very oriented towards selling goods, both digital and physical. But they have a very big marketplace of like custom applications that other developers can write. And then mm-hmm. you as like a shop owner, you can buy, because some of these are, are paid products like per month. So like, so what I'm getting at though is like, you know, you can kind of mix and match. Like you can use Shopify's platform to create a store for someone, but then also create a custom application like a, a custom Shopify app and then integrate that with your store or even sell the application um, on, on Shopify's market and other stores can use it. So there's a lot of potential to, to do stuff in that, in that area. Okay. So if anything, it's almost like created cottage industries, like maybe even more uh, income potential for people than there once was before they existed. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, definitely. And the cool thing about the Shopify app thing is you can write those applications in whatever language you want. As long as you reply back with the correct information, it could be a Flask app, it could be a Rails app, it could be, you know, you handwriting a response in real time, you know, it could be anything. (laughs) Yeah. So it could even be Elixir, kind of like one of your kind of up and coming favorite projects. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. What excites you so much about uh, Elixir? I was reading a little bit about it and it was and then the next question i typed in was like can you know like what's the difference between flask and elixir like is flask going to drop off the map or yeah so it- it's funny because i've gotten a couple people who emailed me and they, they saw me making like some youtube videos about uh, elixir and blog posts and they're like nick what are you doing you jumping ship you're leaving flask forever and it's like <laughs> no not really like i still definitely plan to use Flask, especially when it comes to doing freelance work. Like um, the Elixir job market, I would say right now is a lot, lot less. Like it's much more of a niche down programming language. So there's not that many more, you know, there's not that many jobs available right now. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's some pretty big differences. It would, that would be a whole entire podcast on its, ep- like episode on its own to get into it. But basically like, uh, like the 30 second version, whatever, like Elixir is first and foremost built on um, the Beam, which is like this virtual machine developed, I don't even know how many years ago. I don't know the full history, like 20, 30 years ago. And like okay. it basically, like if you've ever heard of Erlang before, so that's another programming language that runs on this, on this Beam virtual machine. And Elixir basically just compiles, on, compiles down into Erlang and then it runs on that Beam. 
but like that that BMVM, like the telecommunication systems have been running on that since like I think it was and I hate to like misquote dates or whatever, but like, you know, the mid eighties, late eighties, possibly early nineties. Like it's a super battled hardened system that's been running with ridiculous amounts of uptime for a really long time. So there's like some fundamental things about Elixir that, you know, there's certain like concurrency and uptime guarantees that you can get from your applications that are, mm-hmm. are very, very hard to do in other, uh, other languages like Python or Ruby or whatever. But it, no, it doesn't mean like, oh my God, it's the best thing ever, screw Flask. So <laughs> you, you can use both tools together, don't worry. Okay, yeah, I was, I was reading kind of like the lay understanding that I had was like Flask is still excellent for rapid prototyping if you want to kind of do a la carte and then um, Elixir kind of the, the benefits of that, it had no gill, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, so that's like that's part of what the Beam offers. Like every okay. every web request that you make kind of runs in its own isolated process, like its own little universe. So there's no there's no like global lock in that sense. And also like if that process crashes because someone's trying to, to do something bad, like only that little microscopic process is going to crash, and uh, it will not affect everybody else. Okay, and uh, do you know how it stacks up against like uh, Node.js? Because I I, I can't, from what I like, I'm kind of getting out of my area of expertise, but I understand Node competes with Flask basically because you don't you don't have the gill basically with Node.js as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, me, I don't know. I'm probably going to get a lot of hate on this one, but maybe not. <laughs> like, I'm not a fan of JavaScript that much. Like, I don't want to okay. say I hate its guts, but it's like <laughs> I don't want to write Node. Like, even TypeScript is improving, and ES6 JavaScript is definitely way better than it was before that existed. But yeah, I just don't like the style of writing JavaScript code. And mm-hmm. uh, I would choose Flask over Node 100 out of 100 times. <laughs> okay. And that's not because I have a Flask course. Like, I don't care about that at all. Like, it's just personal preference. Sure. But yeah, no, like, you know, when you're using Elixir or Python or Node, yeah, all three of those technically could compete in the same space of like, you could use all three of these tools to create web applications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, so I'm, I am curious, I saw some stuff where you were basically getting interviewed on um, a conference called like Cloud Field Day, I think is what it was called. And I was curious, like, uh, what conferences do you look forward to attending? I guess this year, for example, or what's left of it? Uh, this year, I actually don't go to too many conferences. And in Cloud Field Day, it wasn't so much like a conference. It was like, I don't know if you want to get into that, but... I, uh, we I don't guess. have to. We could if you want, though. Sure. So, yeah. Cause, uh, I'm kind of curious, I guess. what What is it? Exclusive uh, group or something like that? I guess it relates to this. Sure. So the way Cloud Field Day works is, you know, they reach out to you. And the only reason they reached out to me was because of my blog. Like, they've been reading my blog for, like, over a year. And no. they were like, wow, this guy, you know, he knows some stuff that's relatable to what we're doing. You know, let's go in and, and invite him. So when you get invited to Cloud Field Day, you and about 10 other people will get flown out to wherever they're deciding to do it. Usually it's in like the Silicon Valley area. And all of you, all 10 of you or 12 of you, whatever, you basically for three days, you go around um, and you meet up with these, with these companies in, in the Silicon Valley area or wherever it is, like mm-hmm. Oracle, you know, all these like rubrics, there was a whole bunch of companies. And these companies typically give like two hour presentations where you and 10 others 
are sitting around like, you know, like a conference table with microphones and there's like video cameras being live streamed. And these companies give presentations and then you like you're called like a delegate, like you're one of 12 delegates or whatever. Like your job is to listen to their presentation, interrupt people as they're speaking and kind of just like, you know, give real honest, like unscripted feedback about like the presentation that the company is giving, like question everything, you know, you want to make the company, you know, you want to make sure that what the company is saying lines up to what they're trying to actually say. So like your job is like, you know, to be an expert or whatever, and, and just, um, you know, interact with a company given the presentation. And then we, you know, we do multiple uh, presentations a day. Like uh, it really depends on the schedule, but yeah, last time I went, we did nine of them in three days and it was a hectic schedule, but it was very fun. But all of that really just came down to just being out there writing blog posts. And then uh, I, I just got invited. It was so super informal too. So Stephen uh, Foskett, uh, did I just butcher his last name? But he reached out to me on Twitter DM and it's like, hey, do you want to go to California? Okay. All right. Okay. And then like 10 minutes later, we had a five minute phone call and like, that was it. Like that's how informal it was. Okay. And the incentive for you to go to something like that is you get access to like, um, technology before it's released or something or usually usually um, those presentations are live streamed so you're not really getting technology before it's released because it okay. is being like these companies are kind of using that tech field day event as like a launching platform because it does get live streamed to like you know thousands of people um, okay. but the benefit for me I guess or any other delegate who goes there I don't know it's kind of like um, getting to fly out there like you know it's all paid expenses like they take care of you traveling hotels food they really take care of you, but you don't get like paid actual money in your pocket. But yeah, no, you get to meet a lot of different companies, make friends in those companies, meet the other delegates who are like very like-minded with you. And then mm -hmm. you guys can network and we have a Slack channel or whatever. And uh, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a very, it was a very positive experience both times I went. Okay. Yeah. That kind of leads me into my next question is uh, where do you find like good community, good communities to plug into and uh, we'll kick it off with that. I have, I have some more questions around that. But. Yeah, good communities is very tough. It, it really depends. Well, it really is also, it really depends on what you're, what you're trying to find a community for. Okay. But local meetups are always, probably can't go too wrong if you're in um, you know, a town or a city that has local meetups going on. I would say definitely check those out. Because a lot of times, you know, if you go to a meetup that has 20, 30, 40, sometimes 150 people, like you'll definitely find, or you know, probably will find at least one or two people that you'll leave the meetup and still stay in touch, and then you become friends with them. Maybe it's also a good avenue for freelance work because you make friends with these people, and then suddenly it's like if they're overloaded with work, you know, they're not going to just go to like a freelance marketplace site. Like they're going to contact their network of friends. So now it's like you have a potential another source of income. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that. I guess that kind of answers my second question, but maybe just correct me if I'm wrong here. It sounds like the, uh, at least from the free, like getting jobs, for example, or leads for jobs, the in-person is way more effective to do community, community building and participation with. Oh yeah, I think so. And it's kind of like counterintuitive too, especially was for me. Um, but like when you go to a meetup, like let's say you're going to like a flask meetup and let's just say whatever, there's 50 people there you would think like, how in the world am I going to get a flask job when there's 50 other flask people there? Like, but it doesn't even work out like that in practice. Like when you go there, 
it's not like 49 of the other people are just out there looking for freelance work. Like half the people in their room are probably actually looking for a Flask developer. Mm-hmm. So because, you know, it could just be some person who has a, you know, a startup idea or they've already had their idea and implemented it. And now they're looking for ways to improve or, or hire someone like, yeah, there's opportunities everywhere. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's good to hear for sure. Do you have any like favorite online communities or do you kind of leverage those differently? Mm, for, for what specifically like finding jobs or just like yeah, I guess, talking to I people? Guess well, that's a good question. Uh, the other kind of part of that question, I guess, would be like, what kind of criteria do you use? So it sounds like if you're trying to find a job, that would be different criteria than right. um, like getting help, I guess, if you're stuck or something like that. So Yes. I'm very much opposed to, um, well, I'm not opposed to Stack Overflow. I don't have an account there. I don't like write answers there, but if you just want to like mingle with other people, ask questions, get answers, just find you know, people you want to talk to, like you want to talk shop about Flask. So mm-hmm. I'm a big component of using um, of IRC. So the okay. IRC channel is quite popular. I think Flask specifically also has a Discord channel that's like linked to work with IRC. I don't think they have a Slack channel. But uh, yeah, some communities, they use Slack, like Docker has a public Slack channel. Uh, Elixir has a public Slack channel. Mm-hmm. Flask is on Discord. Um, all of them are on IRC as well, which have hundreds and hundreds of people. So uh, free node is the IRC network. And there's like, yeah, a lot of tech people on there. So that's nice. I like the real-time chat aspect because then it's like, you can talk to people in private or in the public channel and get real-time feedback. It's not like forum posts. Hmm. I think you have a blog post on uh, Freenode, if I recall. Yeah, I think I may have blogged about IRC a couple of years back. Uh, a lot of people think it's like super unpopular now, but it... You know, Slack is more popular, I guess, on paper, but there's still many, 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 many thousands of people on IRC. Okay. And if someone is like, someone isn't used to like what IRC is, it's basically just like, um, you know, it's an online chat room that has channels and there's no fancy like uploading photos like Slack or whatever. It's just purely text-based. Kind of like a AOL Instant Messenger or something like that? Something like that. <laughs> Yeah, I gotta I gotta check it out. Somebody else at my work was uh raving about like there's so many people on there and they're like minded people. So yeah, I'll have that that's uh good advice. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, well, let's see here. Uh I was kind of curious, did you have any mentor figures or did you just like learn by uh just putting yourself in the fire and then, and then yeah. the fire out. Like how did, how did that work? So for me, it's, I guess it's a little bit different now than it was like 20 years ago. Like 20 years ago, there was no Google, like search engines were just barely a thing. Heck mm-hmm. the first couple of years I used the internet, like I didn't even have a graphical browser. Like I was using hyper terminal and windows, which is uh, pretty hardcore, I guess. But yeah, like what I'm trying to get at, it, there was not an outlet to even find mentors really. It's like, you went to these local meetups or whatever. Like I used to go to these 2,600 meetups in New York city and like you just find people and, but no, I never really had like an official mentor. I guess like this one guy who we developed um, like a a gaming, like a quake gaming ladder together. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't really, I don't know. Like I don't want to discredit him by saying he wasn't a mentor, but it's like that project that we worked on was very motivating for me to get into like web app development. Okay. Uh, do you think like hindsight 
could you have like halved your time? Like if somebody were to mentor under you, for example, like could you have their time or is that kind of the whole point of your courses? Oh God, man. Like if I had someone that I can just like throw questions at nonstop, Mm -hmm. like it wouldn't even, it would be more than half. It would probably be like five times. Like, cause it, it, just being able to rattle off question, like first and foremost though, like as a developer, like you have to get, in my opinion, at least you need to get pretty used to figuring out like, how do I solve the problem in front of me without X, like without like, you know, the get out of jail free card. Like you have to know how to Google and really like read GitHub issues and read source code and documentation. So I think there's good practice in not having a mentor to get used to doing stuff like that. But like mm-hmm. once you get to a certain level and you just like, because even now, like, you know, there are people in IRC that I talk to when it comes to like some crazy low level, low, low, low level Linux stuff. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just being able to ask him a question and then get a response back is super, super helpful. Yeah. And I, I found that uh, like I've, I've been uh, like a connoisseur of like online learning because um, I kind of live out in the middle of nowhere. So uh, like meetups aren't really like an option for me, for example. But yeah. one thing I, that really struck me about your courses is uh, how accessible you are. Like, do you, like, what's your stats on like service level? I feel like you respond really quick. So my, my response is more of like, if I'm, if I'm not sleeping, I'm responding basically. Okay. So, you know, within like an hour response time is usually about decent unless, you know, it's the middle of the night and I'm sleeping or whatever. But uh, yeah, no, I get a, a lot of, a lot of emails, not that many forum posts. Uh, a lot of people seem to love to email me one-on-one, but uh, yeah, I try to respond as fast as I can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, uh, I guess that's just part of your business model. Uh, you have a pretty cool, well, do you mind like explaining that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I guess in the sense like, you know, as I make more courses, like anything else, like as a developer, the more you do, the better you'll become at it. So like, mm-hmm. I try to develop my courses now and I think of so many things up front where I try to eliminate questions as much as possible just by being clearer in my material. So mm-hmm. like the better you make the course, the less questions you get. So it's not like I wake up and my email inbox has like 85 questions in it. Like usually on a daily basis. Well, it's hard to say daily because I usually check my inbox, you know, at least like once an hour or so. And there's usually like one message here, a couple there. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, it's not like an, an absolute like bombardment of emails where I'm spending all day doing email. Usually it's maybe like 30 minutes in the morning, usually because, you know, now there's like six to eight hours of backlogs because I was sleeping. But yeah, and then it's like just a couple of uh, emails here and there. Okay, excellent. And and specifically, I guess, like uh, you kind of alluded to this in, in your answer there, but basically like when you create the course, people are like you're constantly updating these to kind of eradicate question, common questions that are coming up, but basically people pay one time and they have this lifetime access. Is that, uh, to unlimited like updates, right? Or is that, is that a thing of the past? No, it's still there. So you pay once for the course and then you get uh, lifetime updates and lifetime support as well. So if you have, cause I don't know, it, it feels weird when it comes to software, uh, it's like, if you're going to release a course that's like 10 hours long, you can't just expect to give someone like a 30 day refund, like if they want one or whatever, because it's like people live busy lives and taking a 10 hour course, like, especially if you're a parent or you have a full-time job, like it may take you like three months before you even get a chance to sit down and do the course. So 
I, I think it's important to have, um, I, I like the lifetime model. It's also kind of like rigged because it's like, well, whose lifetime, you know, like <laughs> my lifetime or your lifetime, or am I really going to be giving you support when I'm hopefully 97 years old? Like, but realistically, yeah. So you pay months and you just get as much support as you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what kind of courses do you have cooking right now? Right now, uh, I've been working on like an application deployment course that is, okay. it's been cooking for a while now, like a year, but it, it's, it's kind of difficult when you have like freelance work and then it's like you want to make a course and then you also want to have like a social life and then you're also doing the blogging, also making YouTube videos. Like it's a lot of time. So it, yeah, I'm trying my hardest to get it out, but it's a gigantic course. I mean, it's already over 150 video lessons long and it's like not even done yet. Okay. Is it like Ansible, Terraform, and then yeah. some sort of like a web app or what are you thinking? Uh, it's using Ansible. So Ansible is also written in Python. It's like a configuration management tool that just helps you like automate setting up a server. Mm-hmm. It also uses Docker and it comes with a whole bunch of example applications like a Dockerized Flask app, a Dockerized Rails app, a Dockerized Phoenix app, like all these and a Node app as well. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of them and Throughout the course, we kind of go over everything you would ever, 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 ever want to know about like <laughs> how to deploy an application to uh, something like a DigitalOcean server, but it could theoretically be anywhere. So AWS, Google Cloud, like whatever you prefer. So it just goes through the motions of going from ground zero with no server to actually having an application up and running, secure, you know, over HTTPS with like database backups and metrics and alerting and everything else you would want in a production grade application. Yeah, I'm I'm secretly like super excited for exposure to something like that because um like this is one of my frustrations with uh I won't say like all of the training uh out there um but basically there's like toy stuff and I think you've you even used that word once upon a time uh mm-hmm. maybe in one of your courses but it's like uh it's just hard to find like real like real world battle tested stuff that you can you can learn and then not, you know, get 30% of the way through and be like, I need to go find a better resource. Yeah. So. Cause at the end of the day, like I'm a developer too, like that toy thing, totally, totally agreed. Like mm-hmm. I hate reading like something where it's like, okay, so we're going to do this, this and that. Oh, by the way, you know, what we're doing now isn't really that suitable for production. And then they don't even tell you where to go to make it suitable. And then it's like, what the hell am I reading this for? Like, I don't, I want to put something in production. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, man, I, I can't tell you, uh, that sounds really exciting. Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, I don't know, you find, find time for that. Or do you have like a release date that you're thinking about? I don't have a hard release time on that. I mean, I want to get it out for sure by the end of this year. I mean, hopefully a couple of months. Um, I've actually haven't recorded any of the videos yet. I, I, uh, I, but I wrote out like word for word scripts for them. And there's like 400,000 words of scripts and like everything's prepared. It's just not recorded. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for anybody that's listening that hasn't experienced your courses, I mean, they're, uh, they're legit for sure. I mean, no, no rock gets unturned. Is that kind of like a, like a fair, I know it's a little cliche, but that's a fair statement, right? Yeah. Plus like right now we're just like, talking on a podcast live unscripted whatever comes to mind we're talking about but like when it comes to my courses like i literally write things out word for word i don't really read them 100% word for word on the video cuz otherwise you sound like a robot reading from a script but mm-hmm. you know so 
what I'm trying to get at is like, there's no like um and us and like, uh, okay, this and this, that, or like repeating the same information twice because it's all written out. It's already planned out. Like it's very focused and concise. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, that's, I, I'll, I'll just leave it there. Like I'm super excited for that. So, uh, you know, count me in for sure. You got, you got me for sure in that. Um, man, there, there's just so much I want to, uh, cover here. We're kind of rounding We're we're actually over the hour. Um, how about, how about we do a little lightning round? So let me just ask you these and then, uh, don't, don't think too hard and, uh, fire, fire away. Is that cool? Sure. Go for it. Okay, great. So what are top four programming languages to learn in 2019? Python, Elixir. Don't worry about anything else. Maybe Ruby. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, favorite video game of all time? All time. Jesus Christ. Like console games included, like NES days. I, I was going to get into like the Sega, like I was going to try and narrow it down to like you know, favorite Sega game or something, but yeah, lightning round. Uh, lightning round. I have to go with the good old Quake 3 Arena, early okay. 2000s. Had so much fun. But then there's like Diablo 2 too. Oh man, you're killing me on this one. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, oh, that's, that's great. Um, okay, what is like the worst trend you think in the Python community right now? Uh, hard to say. I mean, it's still fighting between Python 2 and 3, even though now finally there's like an end of life on Python 2. So okay. I still think battling two or three is the biggest, well, it is a problem. Okay. Uh, is there, do you think there's like an opportunity for income there or is it kind of like a, kind of like a messy situation? I, I guess there's opportunity for income because when Python two officially becomes end of life, maybe there'll be a lot of people who now have these applications running in production and they need to migrate that to Python three. Uh, if their applications are very like, focused on Python 2, you know, maybe you can step in and help people out converting their Python 2 apps to 3. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Yeah, that was kind of, that, that wasn't part of the lightning round. Sorry. Uh, last <laughs> question. Uh, uh, what do you think is the best trend in the community right now for Python? For Python, best trend? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of stupid, but it's like people finally getting on board and agreeing that you know, Python 2 needs to be end of life. And I'm actually, uh, like, most of the applications I've used are Python 2 still. Uh, mm -hmm. I've only recently started to use 3.7 on, on newer projects, but it's kind of the flip side of that, that people are actually coming along, you know, packages, like big packages like Celery are finally compatible with Python 3.7, which is nice. That only happened semi-recently a couple months ago. Okay, excellent. Um... I've really enjoyed this interview. I hope uh, maybe somewhere down the line we can catch up and do this again. Um, where, where can people find more uh, about you or what's your call to action? Uh, my main website is where I post all of my uh, blog posts on. So that's nickgenatakis.com. Just like it's spelled, of course. Okay. <laughs> that, that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> so... Uh, the way I kind of pronounce it in, in, uh, when I visualize it, it's like Jane and then Takis, T-A-K-I-S, yeah. right? So do you, do you have like, um, yes. Do you have like a show notes in your, in your uh, blog or your yeah. podcast? I'm, I'm hoping to, uh, develop that. So, uh, like I'll put this on YouTube and that'll be, 
that'll be um, easy to put in there. But on um, iTunes, like I'm still kind of learning the ropes there. So, okay. but I'll make sure that we, we get that squared away as much as possible. So the search friendly version is you can type in Nick JJ GitHub and then check out my GitHub profile that has a link back to my site. Okay. Excellent. Well, uh, did we leave anything off the table that you uh, would like to talk about? No, otherwise uh, I'm going to be thinking about all night about that game question now, but uh, <laughs> I think we covered it all. Okay. Yeah. I had a lot of fun. Um, I, I say we do it again sometime. 